Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at um, the Gospel of St. John, um, the 20th chapter, the 19th to the 23rd verse. It's a really um, significant and uh, enlightening gospel. It opens for us uh, all sorts of understanding into the purpose of the incarnation of Christ, into the mission of Christ, into the mission of the church. And, um, and it helps us then to understand maybe in a deeper sense this whole um, <clears throat> relationship between Jesus's mission in the world, his incarnation, and his incarnation within the church and the church's mission in the world. And it also is one of John's uh, radical um, affirmations of the resurrection of Jesus. Um, we see that take place certainly in Luke's gospel. It's a very, very strong part of Luke's gospel at the end when Jesus affirms that he is not a ghost, when he eats with them and so forth. Um, and now in John's gospel, we're going to see that Jesus is very much one of them, very much risen from the dead, yet there is something radically different about him. Um, St. Paul speaks later on about the spiritual body, and whatever that means, uh, no one seems to really know what that might mean. But certainly, there is something different about the body of Jesus, but it is his body nonetheless. And uh, so it says, in the evening of the first day of the week, the doors were closed to the room where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them. And so here we have this otherness of the resurrected Jesus. The doors are closed, but he passes into the room nonetheless. And so there is something different. It isn't, it isn't exactly like it was before the resurrection. And yet he refers to John, refers to him as Jesus standing among them. And he speaks, and he said to them, peace be with you. This greeting, peace be with you, the greeting is shalom. Um, in Hebrew, salem, I believe, in Arabic. And... Um, Basically, it just doesn't mean peace be with you. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean that, but it means peace in all of its dimensions. It means a good life. It means a happy, happy life. It means that things go well for you. It means that you're that you have found some peace in your life. It means that you have a good relationship with your family. It means all of those kinds of things. And so, when he wishes them shalom, he is wishing them therefore everything in their lives that are good. And then he showed them his hands and his side. And so his body is as it was taken down from the cross in some ways. He still has the hand, wounds in his hands. He still has the wound in his side. And then he, the disciples were filled with joy when they saw him. And he said to them again, peace be with you. So this time, the disciples are overjoyed. They have already been aware of the risen Lord. We have seen that there are all sorts of manifestations of the risen Lord in the Gospels, jumbled in many ways, confused in many ways by the excitement and the enthusiasm of the witnesses. 
but nevertheless, they, they, now they, they are afraid that maybe they, they're hiding, maybe they've lost him, maybe this is over, maybe this is it. And then all of a sudden he's there among them and he's wishing them well and he's wishing them happiness and he's wishing them peace. And then he says to them, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Unbelievable. This is unbelievable. Jesus came into the world. He came into the world to do the mission of his Father. And that although there is strong theological arguments that the incarnation was, was planned from the very first moment of creation, that the mission of that incarnation is changed by, by the uh, behavior of humanity. And so he says now that his incarnation is not coming just to be one of us now, but to coming because now he has a mission toward us. And what has changed from the very beginning of creation when the incarnation was intended up until the time that Jesus comes is that we have experienced the effects of original sin and actual sin for a very, very long time. And the humanity has therefore in its nature been somewhat distorted and somewhat, somewhat darkened in its nature. And that it has struggled with its own narrowness, its own willingness to kind of, kind of make smaller and make more difficult the life that they have been given. You know, the image of Adam and Eve in paradise is a life of, you know, of, of great um, ease and, and, and um, comfort and happiness. The image that comes after the original sin is one of struggle and one of difficulty and one of pain. And we see immediately the consequences of that in the slaying of Abel by Cain, that the children, the sons, of the, uh, of the ones who have committed the original sin, therefore enter into mortal combat and one of them is killed. So that the whole picture, the whole ethos of humanity has changed dramatically now because of sin. So Jesus now has a mission. And then he breathes on them and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This in John's Gospel is Pentecost. This is when through his, his, his breath comes as he, as he blew into the nostrils of Adam whom he created out of clay in the second, in the second uh, creation story. And so it is the life of God in us is the spirit of God. He blows that same spirit into us now into the church as he blew into Adam, which brought him to life and gave him life. It is the spirit then also which gives the, peep, the disciples life, gives the people life, gives the church life. Pentecost, therefore, we used to call it, I haven't heard it lately, but we used to call it the birthday of the church. Well, maybe it is and maybe it isn't it seems to me it may well also have been matthew 16 18 and the commissioning of peter you are in this rock and upon this rock i will build my church but certainly the life of god comes into this institution the life of god comes into this community here in john's gospel when he breathes on them and says receive the holy spirit
Now, this also means that in John's gospel, Christ has already ascended to the Father. We know that in Luke breaks the, breaks the resurrection, the ascension, and the, the Pentecost um, into periods of time. And that's presumed to be for the sake of the early church so that they might be able to focus on each aspect of their redemption at once, at, at, it, in giving each one the attention that it is due. The resurrection of the Lord, ponder that the uh, ascension of the Lord, ponder that, and then the Pentecost of the Holy Spirit, ponder that. But John doesn't give the, us the liturgical view of the resurrection, ascension, and um, Pentecost. He combines it, John combines it all into one. Kind of reminded me as I thought about it, you know, that we in the church liturgically we separate baptism, first Eucharist, confirmation. And yet we do so in order that each one might be able to be realized in its own particular way. Um, and we do so therefore also for liturgical and for catechetical reasons. But I'm reminded of the difference also in John's Gospel because in the Eastern Church, of course, they are baptized, receive first Eucharist, and are confirmed all at the same time. And that doesn't mean that it, any, either one of them is less sacramental than the other, the West or the East. But what it does mean, of course, is that there's a different way of looking at it. And uh, in the West, we use Luke's gospel. In the East, they tend to use, in their practice at least, the gospel of John. However, whichever way it is, both are legitimate, both are valid. One might reflect the experience, the other liturgical remembrance of the experience, but in any case, the events are the same. And then after he says, receive the Holy Spirit, then he says, for those whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. For those whose sins you retain, they are retained. Now this is interesting. If Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I send you, and then he says, receive the Spirit, and so he confers on them the Holy Spirit, and then he defines his mission. And the mission as he defines it is the forgiveness of sin. Now what exactly does that mean? It means certainly in our practical and daily lives, it means the opportunity that we have for confession. It means the opportunity that we have to have our sins forgiven. And to have our sins forgiven <clears throat> so that we might begin our life anew over and over again. And in this new beginning, in this renewal of life, we have the opportunity to become more than we were before, better than we were before, more faithful than we were before. So it means that. It is the foundation of the sacrament of reconciliation, of penance, confession, whatever we choose to call it. But it's something more than that also in this gospel. For not only is it the institution of the sacrament of penance, which it is, it truly is, but it also attacks, in a way, the condition of humanity. 
We said just a little bit before that through original sin and through the multiplication of actual sins, the nature of humanity became distorted. It became deformed from what it was in its beginning, from the days of happiness and peacefulness to the days of struggle and sin and darkness and murder. Those are the things that, that the book of Genesis tells us about, that reminds us about. Now, sin, therefore, becomes the burden of the human race. And as the burden of the human race, it therefore brings with it all of the difficulties, all of the trials, and all of the struggles that Genesis symbolizes in both working the land by the sweat of his brow and delivering the child and, and pain and all of those things. It's part of the human condition. What is Jesus' mission? It is to lift that burden from the backs of humanity and so that humanity can seek once again that peacefulness that Jesus wished the disciples, that shalom in their lives, that sense of well-being, that orderly relationship between themselves and God. This is what Jesus says his mission is. Now, how does he do that? Well, we see that in some degree in the miracles, especially laid out for us in the Gospel of St. John, that these miracles where the consequences of sin, which are physical, moral, mental, and environmental, that he undoes the consequences of sin. He heals the blind. He heals the lame. He raises the dead. He does all of those things. <clears throat> and he does it because that is the mission the Father sent him on. He does it in Israel. He does it in Palestine, in the homeland of the Jews. He does it as an example to the Hebrews. The first ones that receive the revelation are the first ones that have the opportunity to be renewed in the fullness of that revelation. And what he does then is, remember the consternation that it causes when the blind man is able to see, the man born blind is able to see, and the Pharisees are all distraught about it because they have built their kingdom on the sinfulness of man. They have built their power structure on the sinfulness of humanity. If you undo that, their whole power structure would collapse, would fall apart. And so they resist it. They resist it strongly and they distort and they take this idea of the common sinfulness of humanity and they try to particularize it, to individualize it. And so they ask the man born blind and they say to him, well, did you sin or did your parents sin? They want to make ridiculous that which is sublime. They want to make petty that which is most universal. They want to make in some way, shape, or form absurd that which is the ultimate of meaning of our human existence. They want to destroy it all. It's like what Calvin did with predestination, from sharing in the predestination of Christ to the individual's predestination and, prede and predestination to damnation, and, and the fact that uh, somehow or other um, God whimsically chooses between those among those whom he has created to send some to heaven and some to hell and has nothing to do with who they are or what they do. That's where it comes from when you distort the great sublime concept 
and you personalize it and individualize it in the narrowness of our human understanding and our human experience. That's what the Pharisees did. Now, when Jesus has come to forgive sin, he manifests the fact that his mission is far greater than that, much greater than that. And so what he is going to do is lift that burden and restore humanity to its original human nature. And then, so he gives that power to the disciples. Now we hear, you know, how often do we hear, well, I confess my sins to God, and, uh, and he understands and he forgives me. Well, that's not what the Bible says, actually. That's not what the New Testament says. He says that our sins are forgiven through the exercise of ministry on the part of the disciples that he has chosen. And so basically the difference between, well, I tell God my own sins and the Lord sends his forgiving grace into the life of his people are very radically different affairs. And because it has to do with the humanity, it is therefore between and among ourselves that this forgiveness takes place. He empowers the disciples right here in the 20th chapter of John. He empowers the disciples to, um, to have, to be able to lift that burden. And then he sends them forth to do so. So that what this gospel then does for us is this gospel for us helps us to understand the whole dynamic of Jesus in the world, and therefore the whole dynamic of the church in the world. It helps us to understand ourselves. For we are children of Adam and Eve, and we are therefore inheritors of, the, of what they did to their own human nature through the absolute freedom of their will. And what they chose they chose with a fullness that you and I will never understand, that they chose it with an absoluteness that even if we rationalize doing something wrong at the moment we do it, we certainly know deep down inside that we shouldn't be doing it. We do have that sense. We, they had that sense in its absolute form, and yet they chose anyway to sin. They chose to try and be like God. And certainly we know that that's a consistent problem within human nature, a consistent problem within our own society. We are in charge of life and death. We are in charge of the world. We are in charge of our environment completely. We are in charge of just about anything we want to bring up. It's, it's all up to us. The sin of Adam and Eve is rampant within our society. There is no reference to the divine. There is no willingness to adhere to his will and his wisdom and his knowledge. There is no willingness to be totally open to his benevolence, his mercy, and his goodness. Certainly, these, these are struggles that humanity has had, and there have been great moments in the story of the church when there has been a breakthrough into this sense of a relationship with God which is healing and redeeming and which brings us then into a fullness of the church's mission. For instance, the apparitions to Margaret Mary Alacoque of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. 
certainly saying, you know, come to my heart. My heart suffers for you and with you, but through this heart is the passageway into eternal life, into fullness, into happiness, into joy. And so come, come and walk through love. Walk through this symbol of love into the depths of the mystery of God and therefore into the depth of the mysteries of yourselves. So that in this journey through the church, we are given the opportunity over and over again to see the benevolence and the wonder and the mercy of God. We have been able to see over and over and over again this idea of God healing, God saving. How many times, if we stop and think back in our own lives, how many times could we have simply died? Could we have been killed in car accidents and silly accidents even of childhood? In, uh, in misfortunes, in all sorts of things. And yet we live because God loves us and wants us to come to fulfillment as full as we can be before we encounter him face to face. And that comes at different stages of different people's lives. But for us then, the Lord is entrusting to us that kind of optimism, that kind of sense of hope and peace. And he wants us to find that in the church. And that's why he, that's why he gives to the disciples this power. This is not just to forgive our sins in the confessional, which is huge, but it's also to make our lives better for the church to guide us and lead us away from the disasters that make everything worse than they were before. We want to make sure, we want to find a place of refuge and a place of peace, a place where we can enter in trust and confidence and hope in the presence of the living God and the power of the living God in our lives and within our world. That is the church's mission. That is the forgiveness of sin. That is the lifting of burden of sin from its people. On the other hand, just as Jesus disappointed his people and was burdened by the sinfulness of humanity, so too does the church disappoint. And so too is the church burdened with the sinfulness of humanity. And yet, and yet within, within the Holy of Holies, within the inner sanctuary of the church, dwells the body and the blood the soul and divinity of the living God. There is where we go and find that peace, find that hope, find that trust, which binds up our wounds, which alleviates our suffering, and which brings us into an encounter with the living God. So this gospel then is a very, very powerful gospel. It is the story of the resurrected Christ it is the story of Pentecost, of the coming of the Holy Spirit that brings truth and love and goodness into the world. 
It is the story of the empowerment of the church to pave the way for a decent life for human beings in the world, to give them a sense of well-being no matter what the exterior world might do to them, to find, for instance, somewhere in it the strength to endure the sufferings and the losses of our lives, to somehow or other put meaning and context into the world in which we live. And I think that probably in this day and age, this sense of the purpose and the mission of the church is more needed than certainly than we can ever remember. Um, it was needed certainly in the great wars and it was needed in, in the turmoils of the last century. And it's needed in the darkness of the present century, in the bizarre turn that human beings have taken in order to wrest away from God his power and bestow it upon themselves. We might say that the image of Eve prowls among us and that the image of Eve looks deep into the world in which we live. Eve, who was ultimately redeemed by the risen Christ, as to we shall be redeemed by the risen Christ. Still, that same temptation lurks, that same temptation to try and become God. We see it in all of the things around us. We see it. We have a right to recreate humanity in our own image and likeness. We have a right to redefine the human person. We have a right to redefine the person as consciousness and body separate from one another. If that were the case, then Jesus would not have physically risen from the dead. If that were the case, some kind of a strange light would have appeared in the room, not the man himself. If that were the case, that somehow or other he was who he was without his body. Impossible. And it's impossible for us. The body and the spirit are one. We tamper with one we tamper with the other. We sin in one, we impair and harm the other. We are not separate entities. From the days of the Enlightenment, we have struggled with this concept that the human person is solely consciousness and the body their possession. Not so. The human person is body and spirit. And if that were to be reaffirmed, if that were to be believed, it would eliminate a great deal of the strange behavior of humanity in the more recent times. And it would be also a time for us to realize that we somehow or other are an integrated being as the risen Christ was an integrated being. And as I said, he could have appeared to them like he said in Luke. He could have appeared as a ghost, but he did not. He said, look at me, it's me. And what did he do? He ate food to prove that he was real, that he was not some kind of a ghost, some kind of a spirit that prowled without a body, without a form, without a shape. For us then, as we go through this, what do we see? We see the risen Lord as a real person. We see the risen Lord loving his disciples by wishing them peace and well-being. We see him as teaching his disciples, as the Father has sent me, I send you. We see him as bestowing the Spirit upon them when he breathed in them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he told them what the mission was that the Father had sent him on and that he was sending them on. And that is to liberate humanity from sinfulness individually, ourselves in sacrament, 
and universally in prayer and in work and in wonder began to reconstruct the human nature in the image and the likeness of the divine, which was so distorted and so, and so in so many ways disfigured by the human sinfulness, the root of which always lies. And I assume to unto myself the power and the righteousness of God, the fundamental sin of humanity. And we see it over and over again. The church's mission is to address it and to expose it and to defeat it in order that humanity might be free. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. 